everybody, you're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 302, The Dane Miller Interview. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. I know we have a lot of French listeners, and I know Eddie is ready to give it to them. So let's, Eddie, I want you to jump right into it. Go ahead. <laughs> so to speak. Look, uh, all I can For say context, is- the, the match has just ended, and we're recording just after the um, the deciding penalty miss. Yeah. Yeah, so Switzerland have just knocked France out of the Euros in the uh, last 16 after a 3-all coming from 3-1. For the context of the listeners of the match, France, Switzerland took the lead. They then had a penalty to go 2-0 up, which was saved. Uh, France then immediately went 2-1 up and then later 3-1 up, at which point Paul Pogba decided to stand there like a total prat um, and in, as, as his celebration. And then Switzerland scored two late goals to force extra time, and they then went to penalties. Every penalty was scored until Mbappe took France's fifth penalty, at which point it was saved, and Switzerland are through. Look, I, as someone who lives in Paris, all I can say is the streets of Paris are very, very quiet right now. Uh, you know, my issue always with France is two things. One, they're the biggest fair-weather fans in the world. Like, they will not watch the remainder of this tournament. Also, I know that they will complain tomorrow. They'll say that the referee cost them somehow. They'll say that something went against them. Like, they can never just think we underperformed or that team outplayed us. It will always be someone else's fault for why they've lost. And on the balance, it was a good match. France played very well in the second half to come back from behind. Um, Switzerland, I was impressed with. I think they were more dangerous going forward than I would have expected. I expected them to be really organized and defensively quite solid, which in the end they kind of weren't solid defensively at least. But I did expect them to be competent. Uh, but it's it's very, very surprising that France's reigning world champions are being knocked out against one of Europe's respectable but smaller footballing nations. Yeah, Sam, I don't know if you agree, but for me, I thought when that penalty was saved, I thought that was going to be our talking point, you know, that had they put that in, do they hold on to win? And it's, I think it was pretty amazing that they then went down 3-1 and still came back. I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I said it during the match that when Switzerland were wandered up, I was actually more confident in Switzerland pulling off the upset than when they missed the penalty. Because you do get that feeling of like, that's going to galvanize the French. They're going to, well, as they did, they're going to like be re-energized. They're going to go up the pitch. And they did what they did within like four minutes of the penalty miss and go 2-1 up. And then you saw the the swagger of going 3-1 up, which is ultimately now looks really bad. But yeah, I, I felt more confident at 1-0 in a weird way than a penalty miss and staying 1-0. It just felt like the writing was there. But yeah, fair play to the Swiss, really. I mean, when we saw them in that Group A, um, a few pretty average performances against the Turkish, the the Welsh, and then, you know, the Italians were very good in that group. But suddenly to really step up going into the knockout phases to do what they did, come back in the way they did as well, and to hold their nerves, there were some really good penalties in there from both teams, actually, but uh, the Swiss especially. So no, well done to them. 
Yeah, and, and I agree with both of you. I mean, Sam and I were speaking during the match, but 100%, it felt like that was just such a huge momentum shift to have the missed penalty. And a, and a same campus Frank as Sam. I would have been more confident in them had they just not been awarded the penalty and not missed it. But then when you feel like if you're Swiss, you suddenly start to think like that was our chance to maybe kill the match off. And if you're French, you think, okay, things are going to go our way. And I mean, then within five minutes, right, they were 2-1 up. So, you know... You you have to really credit Switzerland for being able to bounce back from that disappointment. I guess one challenge to come back in a match late on, but to do it after feeling as if it would have been easy for heads to have dropped. And we've seen some teams over the course of this tournament already where late on it's kind of felt like they re- they sort of want to be anywhere else but on the pitch for the last few minutes. Like the Dutch um, on Sunday or yesterday, towards the end of that match, it just felt like they thought this is over. Like they, you could have ended that match, match 10 minutes early, and I don't think they would have complained. How much do you credit the Swiss for that comeback, and how much do you rip into the French side for conceding two goals in 10 minutes when all you know you have to do is just hold the line? So I'll say two. We spoke about after France played Germany, the fact that the Germans, and this is a warning for England, but the Germans look like, the only time they were getting any joy going forward was when they got the ball out wide. Switzerland probably watched that and realized that was always going to be their best chance. So for the first two Swiss goals, I just give them credit. It's just well-worked moves, nice balls into the box, good good finishes. I'm more critical of France for that third goal because as good of a finish as it is from the Swiss player, the fact that a fairly straightforward ball has split their two central defenders and just put it in a position where a simple ball into feet has then allowed him to have an opportunity from the edge of the box right in the middle of the goal to produce a good finish, which he's then done. Like, there's no denying the fact that's a that's not an easy goal to, to score, but that's terrible defending. I mean, if you're in that French dressing room now, I would be ripping apart the two central defenders and asking them what they were doing. And so there I blame the French a bit, but... You know, the Swiss had the disallowed goal before that. They they had, it's not as if their equalizer kind of came out of nowhere. They were really piling on the pressure in the final five minutes, so they deserved it. Yeah, and you could tell kind of going near the end of the second half, like the, the kind of everything was tiring up a bit and French maybe looked better in extra time kind of from an attacking point. But going back to your point about defense is interesting because when you've looked at these round of 16 games so far, like the Spanish tonight or Spanish earlier today, um, a very almost very similar match to what we just saw. They look so bad from the centre-backs. Like Croatia were just carving them open in terms of anything that was over the top, anything that was near them. It was really easy for Croatia. But then from the Croatian side of things, their full-backs were getting torn apart. Like so much of it was just getting played down the wing. They were quite lazy. They didn't track back. And then you saw it with the Dutch the day before where all of a sudden it was quite easy to just carve them open. Like even without the kind of going man down, like the Czechs was finding it really easy down the wings. It's kind of interesting seeing these like bigger nations have these real kind of defensive frailties as they go through it, to be honest. It's, um, it'll be interesting to see like what they do. Well, the French can't do anything about it now, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what the Spanish do because, you know, well, I guess they're playing the Swiss now, so they can probably find something, but it's been interesting. 
Spain doesn't worry me. If I'm Spain, it doesn't concern me too much because I think Spain will have figured out coming into this tournament that if they were going to have to live by the sword and die by the sword to a certain degree. They probably don't want to have quite as exciting of a match as they did against Croatia today, but I think they will know they're going to have to play open attacking football and the downside to that is they're going to be open at the back too. The French, it's surprising because the thing... You like to think of this France team because of the number of great attacking players that they have. And spoke about it before, they're not too dissimilar to England in that they're more defensive than you would think they would be on paper. And the thing that's made them so difficult to beat over the last, you know, basically five, six years is the fact that they are very, very defensively solid. And so it's surprising to see against a mediocre European side, even if Switzerland now go on a run, we know the quality of player that they're fund- fundamentally kind of throwing out there. It's surprising to see the French not being in pretty much total... Like You could have told me this match had been going into it if you said France were going to be knocked out. I could have seen it, either the Swiss nicked a goal and then France just failed to ever kind of get that goal to equalize, but dominated. Or you could have told me it was one all and went to penalties, maybe even 2-2. Two, two. The fact that they've conceded three in the 90 minutes to Switzerland, it's very, very surprising. But you know what, Frank, Sam's really building there. He's liking, he's pointing out the weaknesses of these other big nations. But what that's really leading to is he wants to say now, doesn't that make you feel no, 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 no. This is where he's going. He's going to it. He's no. going... My point was going to be that I value the way Southgate has played against the three games so far more because of it. Like, that's what I will say. I'm not going to, well, I'm not going to jinx it. So question to you both. We had 14 goals today in two games. Do you think the tournament has lit up now? Or do you think it's a bit of a, we spoke about it when a couple of years ago in the Europa League final, Severe Inter does lots of goals, make it a good game? Or was France, Switzerland a genuinely good game and the other game maybe just had lots of goals? Is this the start of the tournament? The Spain-Croatia match. Spain just looked the much, much better side for most of it. And then they let Croatia back in. And then they looked a much, much better side in extra time. So it's kind of a weird one where people are like, well, how thrilling was this eight-goal match? So, well, it was only actually exciting for about 15 minutes. <laughs> like, most of the match, it looked like Spain were in kind of complete control. Whereas the Spain, the Switzerland-France match, I think, was a little bit different. Because even when France went 3-1 up, Switzerland still offered, you knew that they were going to maybe have a chance going forward. I didn't think they'd score the two they needed. I felt like that Pogba goal had killed it off. But you still just felt like maybe. Um, I always think tournaments get exciting when you start to see some upsets. I think that wakes the tournament up a bit. I think it inspires. So if we had been in a situation where everything had gone chalk, which it was kind of doing, then you kind of start to feel as if, right, this is, you know, everyone's been really critical of this tournament and the format and the 24 teams. And and then now this has happened. And maybe that wasn't the case because you've just had a team that finished third. Yeah. I, I also think just regardless of like Eddie saying, whether you have a higher amount of teams or, you know, like a more concentrated amount, once you get to a knockout stage of anything, when there's one goal between going home and moving on, the intensity just is so amplified that it can make even games that are less eventful than the Spain match or, 
the the France match, it still makes them exciting because you know if there's just one mess up, one bad play, you know, a team is that close from tying it up or going out. Um, you know, I mean, it the the Italy match wasn't the greatest of matches, you know, technically, but still you had Italy needing to go to extra time to win. Um, you had the the Belgium Portugal match was not as exciting as the ones we watched today, but still the intensity was there where, you know, like Ronaldo had that one free kick with what, a few minutes left. And, you know, no, 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 if, Frank, if you weren't Frank, I just got to say this, it's now a rule. Ronaldo can't take a free kick without everyone reminding the rest of the world that Ronaldo isn't as good at free kicks as everyone thinks. It's like, <laughs> which look, we get it. We've all heard it. We've all seen the statistics. He's it's like a Peter Crouch, surprisingly good with his feet kind yeah. of fact. It's like, oh, <laughs> and everyone has to say it at the moment, which is, I guess we won't hear it for the remainder of the tournament, thankfully, but it, it, you had to sit through it where everyone kind of like, well, you do know, everyone thinks Ronaldo's good at free kicks, but he, he hasn't scored one in a long time. And it's like, yeah, we get it. Like we've, yeah. And then people even throw out the advanced stats. So I saw that there was like the expected goal stat that came out with Ronaldo, which was, I think, over the last three seasons, his expected goals from free kicks should have been something like 8.6, but he's only scored five of them. So he's actually below average at free kicks. And it's like, well, that's all well and good, but you'd be it's pretty still, bold. Like when he's yeah. standing over with yeah. three minutes left, it's a different feeling to if he took mm. on and gone, hey, Renato Sanchez, you want to take this one? <laughs> you know I'm not that good. <laughs> yeah for sure so, and actually I, I think there's been no goal scored off a of free kick still so far right unless there was um, one today because as of yesterday there wasn't no in the tournament so far and also we got to then accept i agree with you i actually think the belgium belgium portugal match has been the best match of the tournament in many ways that second half portugal looked really good and they had belgium on the back foot they you know and if if one of those chances had gone in i think portugal would have gone through a point a point I thought was interesting as well is that obviously this is the 40th anniversary, so naturally they've got a lot of it kind of going over Europe. And what you saw over the past couple of days, I think was quite interesting in terms of you had some of these clubs for the first, or nations for the first time going away from their home um, kind of nation where they've played all the group games for the first time and struggling. So Italy, a really good example, you know, played all three of them in uh, Rome then go away for the first time, struggle against Austria. You had the Dutch, first time, they go away, they struggle. You had the Spanish, which were kind of well-regarded as having, I think it's like the least shots against them so far in the tournament. Until today, they go away from Spain for the first time. They then concede three and have quite a few shots against them. So I don't know what you're thinking from that stat, but I thought it was interesting. I mean, England are staying at Wembley tomorrow, but you know, this will be the first game for the Germans that won't be in Munich. So anything to read into that? Or is it just a stat that's kind of a, a, a fun one to say? I think it's a meaningless stat. But I mean, like, look, I think teams would rather be at home, obviously, particularly with fans back in the stadium and also just in terms of preparation and not having to travel and things. I, I'm sure it's it's nicer to be um, and have a stable base. But I think we've seen France, it's surprising. But in the case of the Netherlands, they came into this tournament with big, big question marks. I mean, when we did our tournament preview, right, we said they've got talented players, but how is you know how are they going to handle this step up and the pressure and the attention and needing to kind of, can you deliver, can you turn potential into real results? As it turns out, they couldn't. Um, and so I don't think that's tied to them being away from home 
I just think they're not that good. Uh, and, you know, if you're Dutch, this is not, we've spoken about the golden generation of a couple teams. This is very much not the, the Dutch golden generation. I mean, this is, there's some talented players in there and two or three years from now, if a couple more come through, they might start to look really, really good. But, you know, for a Dutch side in the past where they were bringing on superstars from Europe's top clubs and they desperately need a goal and they're bringing on a player who plays for Crystal Palace, it's all due respect to Crystal Palace, but it, it you know, it kind of, if, if England were bringing on Andros Townsend, I'd be concerned. So it's a sign of maybe a little bit where you are. That being said, I mean, Jack Grealish plays for Aston Villa, so you could, you could kind of do exactly the same statement if England go out tomorrow. Maybe not for long. True. Yeah, soon to be a Manchester City player. Now, I, I know this won't get released before the match tomorrow, but there's been a lot of good reaction to Eddie's England rant uh, when they drew against Scotland. And I've had several people tell me that they've been accused of being psychotic fans and then after having to listen to Eddie for 45 minutes tear into every player calling Luke Shaw fat ass amongst other things. I just want to that is episode 50 for, for those who haven't listened, it's definitely worth going back season two, episode 50. Yeah. Just to clear up when I said I called him a fat ass, I mean, specifically his ass is fat. You know, it was, (laughs) but but yeah, literally a fat (laughs) ass. Yeah. Not that he is obese. With that criticism you had, what are your both of your feelings going in tomorrow? I'm I'm quietly confident, which is worrying. <laughs> you know, like that's actually what <laughs> bothers me more is the fact that I feel I'm expecting England to win by a couple of goals. So I'm I'm scared by a my team own. that scored two so far. Yeah, safe. It's going to win by they're, a couple they're... against against what is proven opposition now, right? It's like looking at a horse race, right? The Croat and Czech form is suddenly held better. <laughs> Than some other people's forms. Well, France the German, and Portu- the well, German France form. and Portugal are out, so the German form looks pretty bad. That group of death <laughs> might not have a single participant in the quarterfinals. Group of death might be dead pretty soon. Now that's also worrying, right? Because there's the other element to that is Germany are kind of due because it's inconceivable <laughs> that this group of death has no one make it that one round further. Okay. As I said, I don't think there's anything to be scared about in this German side. I think that England are better pretty much all over the pitch with a couple of areas, but I don't think it's worrying. It's just about can they create chances and can they take them? Need Harry Kane to prove some doubters wrong tomorrow, you know? Because, and I really do, I f- will genuinely feel slightly sorry for him. If England go out tomorrow and he doesn't score, there will be a Harry Kane backlash. There will be a summer of, is Harry Kane as good as we thought he was? Like, is he a flat track bully? You know, like, should England look so to have a more balanced side that doesn't run through this single player in the way that it kind of does? I, I don't change my opinion. I think England have better depth, better players, and better talent to exploit the weaknesses in Germany's back line more than Germany has going the other way. I think England have shown themselves to be pretty defensively solid, and I think we've got plenty of attacking options. The fact that we haven't started Sancho, for example, and 
I, I, those kind of things make me kind of more excited for what England could do. Um, yeah, my opinion doesn't change. I, I think England are the better side. It's just that kind of be wary of the fact that Germany are a very good team and they have somewhat of a hoodoo over England for the past 50 years worth of tournament football, 60 years. <laughs> we can just say forever. Like beating them in one World Cup <laughs> final doesn't mean that they don't have a hoodoo. I'm, I'm sure we have American listeners who are tuning in to, to listen to our interview with Dane Miller, which we'll get to in a little bit, and we'll maybe touch on some American sports. But my last question here is it's more of a general, I guess, sports question. Tomorrow's match, do you watch alone or do you watch with a crowd? Now, we have the experience the last time I was in England for the World Cup, we got to watch the match all together at a bar. And it was awesome. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. But at the same time, when the team I'm most passionate about is playing an important match, I sometimes like to watch it in my house by myself with no one to give any other input than what like the psychotic things I'm thinking inside my head. So what's what's what do you guys go to for tomorrow? For me, always a crowd. I will always try and be within a crowd of like-minded people, I guess, English fans for the game. I just think that the highs are amplified and obviously the lows, you know, the bad problem with that is the lows are amplified as well. But I feel like if you do win, you create this instant memory of that moment, you know, randomly celebrating with tons of people. Like for me, one of the best England celebrations I had was when we beat Colombia in the penalty shootout and we just... <laughs> surrounded yeah. by like-minded people right <laughs> yeah like i said english friends but when we um we all filed out into london bridge we started like dancing and celebrating in the streets it was incredible it was like an incredible moment and i think it was you can't have that on your own <laughs> you can't have well that you on your could own, right? sam you could dance like, you could dance down the street you up by yourself but it it doesn't have the same yeah it's not the same for me. And I, I would rather kind of heighten the losses if it means I can heighten the moment as well of success. So as you know, um, I'm pretty superstitious. And uh, <laughs> I've not... Just brushing his teeth in the middle of the bar. I've not had many... Are you going to bring a toothbrush with you to the bar, Eddie? Do you know what? I'll do it. Just in case. For those who don't know, Eddie believes his toothbrush has magical powers when when need to be relied upon in crucial game match situations. I'll put it so out So it might be now. worth sticking that in your pocket. I'll put this out here now. If, if it goes to a penalty shootout, I will be in the bathroom brushing my teeth in the bar. Of the bar. No, no I, want bar. You, I want you stood on the bar full on. No, 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 no. no. no, no. I want him in the bathroom of a bar just brushing his teeth. Yeah, just listening because then I'll just have to react based on what right here. Um, just a live reaction of him on <laughs> But yeah, so I'm a little superstitious. I feel like England tend to do better when I'm out in public. So there's that. And I will agree with Sam. Sometimes when you have the big win and you're kind of riding the high, but if you're by yourself at home, there's a kind of anticlimactic. It feels almost sad because you're like, well, that's over. And you're like, I just yeah. guess I'll just go about my day now. Whereas at least if you're with people that kind of spilled, there's some drinks get ordered and stuff and you kind of get to enjoy that victory for a little bit more and not just accept the sad reality that fundamentally you have absolutely nothing to do with it. And the fact that you're getting any pleasure out of what a few random men do on a football pitch is kind of sad. Yeah. And, and I guess the only downside to 
being out is you're going to have those, if it is a loss, you're going to have those annoying fans who, you know, make ridiculous points or statements or, you know, just sour the experience even more. Oh, for me too, I I fully accept. And I've watched England lose to Iceland in public. I've watched England lose, you know, you not only have to deal with annoying fans who also support your team, I will have to do with the fact that people will openly yes. enjoy England losing. Because I think... Kind of, kind of on the flip side of today. <laughs> yeah, but I think the difference is, and this makes it seem so like England-centered in terms of as if it is the center of the universe, but the downside to being an England supporter is virtually everyone enjoys England losing almost as much as they and occasionally more than they enjoy across sport yeah across sport as well it's not just football and so i know that in france that everyone will be now supporting germany tomorrow and i know that if they lose they will take great pleasure in that fact like i fundamentally for me the only reason why i care that france has gone out I do think they're a bit cocky. I do think they needed to be brought back to earth a bit. And I also just look at it from the selfish perspective of it makes England's chances of winning the tournament that bit, that bit better now. If England get knocked out tomorrow, I will watch the remainder of the tournament and I'll hope for good games. I won't really care who wins. And I definitely won't take any satisfaction out of a team losing because that will really have no impact on me. But we'll see what happens. And I also, I'm tired of the Ronaldo free kick storyline there's one other storyline i do not need to be told repeatedly which is you know germans don't really care about this fixture i don't need to be told that it's a one-way rivalry that's fine you i know that germany would care much more if they were playing the netherlands or if they were playing italy maybe even if they were playing france just because of the number of times they've played them in significant matches or in the case of the netherlands because of their just their geographical rivalry but it doesn't make me care less to have you say that the Germans don't care. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't like. It doesn't make it any less satisfying to care a lot yourself. Yeah, I can agree with that. But they they do care. We know that, and this is this. I don't know. No, 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 Sam. I, I have to, it. Sam. I got to correct you here. Don't then do this English thing on the scale of how much they care. Obviously, they're going to want to win in a major championship, but on the scale of teams, the nations they have rivalries with, they really don't care about playing England. They don't. They don't. Don't do it. Speak to Germans. They really don't care. They don't see this is a very you know England see two world wars and one World Cup. Germany just see you're that team we usually beat when we turn up to a World Cup. Like, is that because they don't want to remember the two World Wars? No, I think they <laughs> they just don't want to remember losing them. They they fondly remember right up until the defeat. They remember the invasions and the occupancies. Yeah, they <laughs> they often gather around the fire and talk about the Blitzkrieg. You know, they love that bit. But you know, the Blitzkrieg pop exactly. But as soon <laughs> as they get fans to, that song. You can happily talk to Germans about 39 to 43. But after 43, it becomes a little bit risky. Just a bit blurry. Yeah. Same, you know, you want to talk 1914 to 1916? Great times. Great times. They were riding a high. So if you had to choose between being home or being out at the bar, you're going to choose the bar. What if you had the option 
of watching a very important match or or game, whatever team you're supporting, there at the actual match or in a bar watching it? What would you choose? I might lean towards the bar. Because the sad thing of the match is you still have that moment where you got to like file out and leave a stadium. And that's a pain even if you've won. Like that, yeah. that is a downer. Where it delays like, the celebrating too, yeah. right? Because yeah, it's, you're at least delaying an hour and a half of you getting out of there, getting on whatever train, car you need to go to, and then get to the place where you can start celebrating again. And similarly, if you've then lost, that's a depressing experience of like, now I've got to walk, <laughs> get on public transport, kind of process everything I'm doing while I sit on a train, a packed train, Surrounded by a bunch probably of other spit people. On. Probably, probably <laughs> watching by probably watching the other fans celebrating as well at some point, yeah. which obviously makes it worse. I think the only one I would ever do differently is the final. I think it would be incredible to be there because you can say you've been in that moment, and I, th- I think that's a really cool thing to have. But ultimately, I agree. I think all you're doing at a stadium is just delaying the ability to go to a bar later on. I think it'd be neat to go to an important match that you didn't have a huge vested interest in. You know, like if you just went to a Stanley Cup Game 7 game, you know, and got to watch it and didn't really care who won, but just got to get involved with the excitement of it, I think that would be better than if it was your team. Yeah, Yeah. I I agree with you. I think if I had the choice of going to a World Cup final, I'd rather just go to a World Cup final and not have England be there. And so I could just enjoy the spectacle pick a team I kind of wanted to win but not really care, interact with yeah. fans as a neutral. So that also changes that dynamic, right, particularly in football. I mean, my only experience of a major final in that respect was I went to watch the 2007 Rugby World Cup final, which England lost to South Africa. That was, you know, wasn't the most fun ever. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of big games that we could watch, I am uh... – could potentially go watch an NBA Finals game if I wanted to. I'd be, I'm getting close to being in the near vicinity of a game being played with the Phoenix Suns one win away from making the NBA championship. And for those who are new to listening, Sam picked them way back at the beginning of the season. So he is now a Fairweather Suns fan. Whoa. I didn't need the, I didn't need the caveat. <laughs> well, I mean, are you going to go? Is it easy to go? Probably. I have to imagine. Well, I know that they're selling out full capacity, which is pretty neat. So at least the tickets wouldn't be as expensive if they were doing like the 20%. But I have to imagine in Phoenix, which is a pretty expensive city, those tickets are going to be a hefty chunk. I will say I watched the last game with the group of people. And it was, I mean, people were getting into it. I did not think Arizona even had Suns fans, <laughs> but pretty much the, the party stopped with about three minutes left and everyone just surrounded the TV and was watching the, the last, well, three game minutes, but let's say last 30 minutes in real 35 time. <laughs> minutes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now it's interesting. I mean, look, it feels like a slightly disappointing NBA finals because it's one that's just been defined well playoffs one that's just been defined by injuries because, and that's always, and I feel bad saying that because don't want to feel like to take something away from the Suns or from the Bucks if they make it, but it just feels like every, both the Eastern and the Western conference 
maybe the best team there on paper is not no longer involved. And most of the superstars were eliminated earlier, mostly because of injuries on their teams, either to the superstars themselves or just to another key player. So it's a little bit of a disappointing playoffs, but... And another, I know we, we bring this up multiple times, but it still just continues to blow my mind. The end of that Suns game, the missed three throws that could have potentially put the Clippers back into it, um, but missed three throws by good players. It just, I don't get it. I will never understand how they're not 90, 95%. Well, the big one is that they won't shoot underarm, right? That's like shout out to Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, you're supposed to be shooting. It's the you know, it's the better angle and the more reliable shooting motion. So, if they put their egos aside and just were swinging it through their legs, they might uh, they might not be missing them. Well, they might be swinging it through their legs, but are they shooting it through their legs? (laughs) Sam, (laughs) no comment. (laughs) (laughs) And look, um, also talk about another team or athlete it's been mentioned on the podcast quite significantly before but good day good good weekend for the suns not a good day today for stefano sitsipas who was knocked out in the opening round of wimbledon quite the surprise coming off his french open final defeat um he's now lost six sets in a row from being two sets up against uh in in grand slams from being two sets up against Djokovic in that final so it really feels as if those kind of sliding doors moments you have in your careers. He, uh, he may have experienced one. You just chalk that up to fatigue, a little hangover from losing the finals. Maybe look, it's always difficult to transition from clay to grass. It's not easy. His game isn't as suited to grass play as you would expect, even though he has all of the, components that should make him a really really good grass player the way his feet land after his serve makes it very very difficult his feet don't his uh, front foot so his left foot doesn't land facing the net which makes it very very difficult for him to serve and volley which even though in the modern game people don't serve and volley that much but once you kind of remove it as an effective weapon on grass it's a bit of a shame so which it's just surprising because you'd feel like he could fix that in a couple of months of work, just tweaking the angle of that, that foot opens at. But yeah, he was not one of the favorites for the tournament. I didn't expect him to to sort of, but I didn't expect him to lose in the opening round against a very much known quantity. I think that's the that's the surprising bit. And uh, Sam's other big prediction starts today as well. Sam predicted the Montreal Canadiens to make it to the Stanley Cup final, but then to lose. And game one kicks off tonight. So this that would be a phenomenal prediction by Sam. The squid, I'll have to say. I'd be happy with it, for sure. I'll even help you out, Sam. And I'll say I think there's no way the Canadiens win. Even after the run, there's no way. No, they are not getting past the lightning. Now, I don't know if that's a Duca curse or a reverse Duca curse. But either way, me making a definitive statement on a series has got to help everyone else involved. So, 
Yeah, I don't even know. I've got sound effects, by the way, new <laughs> sound effects to throw in for your Duke of Curse. So, because, whenever I say Duke of Curse, <laughs> no, just whenever one loses. But um, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, Sam. But because <laughs> spoil the sound effects. Look, I can throw this out to the listeners. This is our second episode of season three. Uh, we had decided that we were going to try and change the theme song for season three and mix it up each season. I've, I've tried to find a new intro and I actually haven't found one that I, I like as much. So season three has started with the same intro music still. But if anyone has a suggestion, if anyone out there listening wants to make, um, I think, please only do it if you have musical talent. Like I don't want to, I don't want to be listening to just absolutely. Unless you're stuff. open to being ridiculed when we play it live. By name. <laughs> I Lo- location location tag. where you are tag yeah. yeah i don't want to get it submitted anonymously and then it just be garbage and by that i don't mean the you mean the band oh, yeah, okay. they, even then i wouldn't choose it but <laughs> uh without that i guess i'll uh talk to you boys later and we'll head into the interview yeah i mean i won't say goodbye because people are about to hear us but yeah see you <laughs> see you in a second cheerio over there in a second <laughs> Hello, everyone. We are now joined with Dane Miller, owner of Garage Strength and coach to what now several Olympians, a bunch of Olympic qualifiers and, and trial contestants, as well as a bunch of junior national champions. Um, also have helped coach a lot of USA weightlifting competitions, right? So mm-hmm. thanks for joining us and uh, excited to talk some Olympic training. Thank you for having me. It's five, by the way, five Olympians this year. Five now. Wow. So I guess let's, let's start off with that question. Did you ever think 10, 15 years ago that you would be saying now that you've trained five Olympians at your age? Uh, I think so, mainly because I was such an egotistical asshole. Um, <laughs> that's a good answer. I think I, a lot of people have said that to me, even about the gym, like when you were at your parents' garage and you had 400 square feet, did you ever think you'd be where you are now? And, I, and I'm always like, yeah, I always, I always thought I could do it. I always thought, um, and I know it sounds absurd. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know the path, but I thought I could do it mainly because I was stupid. Uh, but I, I think... I'm not even joking when I say that. It's like I always thought I could do it. I, I, I didn't know as far as coaching is concerned. I didn't know, you know, what would get me uh, certain certain points to to getting to the point where we have a couple, you know, especially athletes from from five different countries even. So I think that that that's where it got a little interesting. But I I, I don't know. I know it sounds hokey, but I always did believe in in my ability as a coach to to get to that point. But looking back, I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. It probably like, I mean, when we've spoken to people in the past too, I think that's often an integral part of success, right? Is just this, this belief that might be unfounded. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who failed who thought the whole time yeah. that they were going to be successful, but, <laughs> but maybe it's like a key part of, of succeeding. So when you say, just to, you say you've got athletes now from different countries, how are they, are they approaching you then? And then how 
how how much are you working with them? So are they moving to be based in the U.S. or is it just you're you're kind of working them for with them for specific periods of time? It's a little bit of both. It's like, um, I mean, I can tell you was the the discus thrower that we had qualify on Friday from the U.S. He's moved to to Reading, and so he was a. I, I worked with him his senior year at at Penn when and he was an NCAA champion, so he and I started to work together pretty early and he, the first meet I coached him at was actually the Olympic trials in 2016. And he was the second best qualifier and he, he did not perform well. Um, and we've had sort of a crazy journey where he's been with me since I was at my, at a barn, you know, training in the snow, just doing crazy stuff. So, um, that, that was with Sam Mattis. And then, uh, 2017. So I'll go through a couple of them. You know, another one of the shot putters is Canadian. He actually lives in Leesport or where, where the gym is. Uh, he, he's come down, you know, he'll come down for spurts because he's got a little bit better financial support from athletics Canada. So like right now he's been down for about like 14 weeks. And especially once, once the border, the border opened, he came down and then like three days later it closed again. So he, <laughs> he sort of timed it really well. Um, and there's, uh, the, there's a Samoan that I trained who's based out of Michigan that he just DM'd me in 2015. Um, and he was terrible. He was like a 57 meter discus thrower. And I started to work with him, you know, online and he comes out for training camps like six or seven times a year. And now he's the number four guy in the world. He's thrown uh 6750, which is like over 220 feet in the discus and um, subsequently because of him and because of Sam, uh, I have a Nigerian female who's based out of Michigan that I met at a meet with Alex like three years ago. And so I've been working with her. Uh, we've been to world champs together in 2019 and, and then 2020 happened. And then now here we are and she's, she's you know, number 17 in the world. Um, and then as far as, um, the last one is a guy named Jason Van Royen. He's based out of South Africa. I've never actually even met him. And I worked with his former training partner for about three years, Arazio Cremona, who was the first shot putter I ever coached that threw 70 feet. And Arazio uh, had gotten South Africa to fund me to go to uh, world champs in 2019. And then after he and I hung out for a while, um, he sort of convinced this younger guy to, to, uh, to sort of jump on board. And it's interesting because it's like, it's such a unique way to coach somebody where like some of my guys are with me all the time and some of them are, are farther away. So it's sort of, it's a different perspective, but it, it's like uh, learning different intricacies of them and just how they respond to cues and then how they handle stress. And, and I think it takes a special person to handle that, that sort of digital coaching, but if they're wired properly, they can do, they can be really successful. So just to just to kind of add to that, when you when these people approach you and you kind of hear their story, hear what their situation is, what they need doing, do you have to kind of assess them and judge them in a way to understand if it's worthwhile for you? Or do you kind of believe there's gains to be had with everyone and you can kind of help them with that? Uh, that that's a good question. That's a really good question, because I'd say it's early on. I would coach anybody. I would take fucking any. Uh, by the way, you should tell me if I'm allowed to swear. You can swear. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Keep going. <laughs> Don't worry. Keep going. There's nothing you can uh, say that's worse than's already been said. So go for okay. it. 
So early on, I would coach anyone and I would, I would just go as hard as I possibly could with coaching. And I think that's one thing with me is that I'm always just constantly on the go. And, and I think that that's beneficial as far as earlier in my career. And now, especially at my gym, on site at the gym, it's, it's, I used to look at every single, I still do every single kid that comes into the gym could be like the next Olympian or the next uh, state champ or the next all American, whatever it might be that they're into. But now that we've grown so much and, and when somebody does contact us, it's more like, all right, um, we, so we have like this internal ranking system and we just, we send them an email that they fill out and it has, we call it like nine levels to become a master of a sport. And then when they send it back, we have an equation that basically tells us like, all right, this guy's a 60 out of 72. He's pretty good. Or this guy's like a 40 out of 72. Like, Hey, Tamond or Trevor, can you guys train this guy? And then I'll deal with, with these other athletes. And it, it's sort of similar to what we would do on site. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I think that, I'm at the point now where I, I have to do that. Otherwise I, I will get bogged down because you get to the point where some, some athletes are a lot more like they're, they're uh, you've got to like rub their back. You got to tell them everything's going to be okay. You got to tell them they're, they're going to be the best. And oftentimes like I'll only do that to certain people if they're at their, if they're at a certain level. So, I, so it is important to sort of wade through where everybody is and basically say like, look, like this is, um, your current level. This is how we, we're going to work with you. And then this is how we're going to get you to that next spot. Because then we can also see like, all right, once they get to a certain level, then I can start to give them even more attention to like the, the little details. So, so what score do I have to get to get daily back rubs from you? <laughs> 110%, 74. <laughs> and Frank, so- your score Probably be high too. That's the funny part. (laughs) So, is that is that system that scoring system that's unique to to you to you and your your group of trainers? Yeah. So we had I had trained with a guy with a a Soviet coach in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, and he was a master of they called so in the in the Soviet Union they had this thing called master of sport. It was like they had certain levels to get to, like there there was like three levels. There might have been more than that, but I just remember him talking about it. And there was once you became that master of sport, it was like you've made international teams or, or you're you're like a world class athlete. And so what we've done is is we sort of stole that concept because I always it's like getting a black belt in in mix in some type of martial arts. It's like I think those are those are cool steps that you can take in different sports. It sort of like bridges you along because it is such a long journey and such a long grind. Uh, so we sort of stole that and, and and we have different exercises that we value and then we we place a value on them uh, and then and then establish where they're at. And it, it sort of helps us with the kids on site and even on top of that, it actually helps. So we have a to, to get to train with me. If you train on site, I only work with the throwers, the weightlifters, specific wrestlers and specific football players. And so like to get into work with with me, you've got to score high enough to get into that group or be like best friends and one of the best kids to get into the group. So it's sort of like a way that we can gauge people like, Hey, you, you don't get to work with Dane because you're only scoring a 45. And it sounds a little pretentious, but then it's sort of like, 
it's like a way that people are like, oh, fuck, man. Like if I score a 55, then I'm only this much closer. So it's it's sort of a, I don't know, it's a unique way. And then once you are in that that top 65 to 72% or point scoring, it's like, well, now we know they're going to be really good. So with that, if you work yourself up as you kind of go through the coaching, do you change coach or does it make sense just to stick with the coach throughout that's kind of been with you? Typically they will change to me. Yeah. So we've got, we have right now, like at the gym, um, there's five of us and I would say two of them. So my, my like throws coach assistant, and then one of my like sports performance guys, who's an assistant, who's actually a shot putter too. Um, those two guys are extremely good and, they could they could be elite level coaches for sure. Like they can one hundred percent. In fact, uh, Trevor the the throws guy he he he's the main coach for our girl who just broke this state record in PA Pennsylvania in the shot and in the discus. But it's still like they still just want to pass everybody on to me once they get to a certain point. When his athletes graduate high school, if they come back and they're elite level throwers, they get to train with my group, and that's sort of like a it's like the rite of passage, really. It's like, all right, you know, I'm in college, I'm throwing over 18 meters, now I get to go throw with Dane. Or I'm a female, I'm throwing 17 meters, now I get to train with Dane. And it is, it is sort of like a unique situation because then they're in a better group too. They're, they're around the pro, the pro athletes. And it's, it's a little bit more of a, you're not training as much with like the sixth and seventh and eighth graders that are talking while you're, you're actually trying to get your work done. Yeah, so I mean, you, you've mentioned a few times now, all of your Olympians so far have been throwers and, um, you know, you're training a lot of throwers. So I think maybe we should go back to your career and it'll be interesting for you to discuss your sports career, you know, where you came from, what you did, and then kind of your journey on going, you know, you mentioned Bunderchuk and going up there into Canada and training with him. And what was that experience like and how you went from being an athlete to kind of grasping it and taking it all in and becoming the coach that you are now. I think that'd be super interesting for everyone to hear. Yeah. So I was a shot putter and uh, I wrestled and I was a football player in high school and I, I threw well enough in high school that I, I went to throw at Penn state with Frank. Um, and I think there's, I think that that like part of my biggest, I've, I've always been, and Frank would know this, I've always been into sports performance and training and, and training methodologies and I'll I'll actually share stories of like the Jay Schroeder DVD that we had and and uh, like just going on websites like way back in the day and and printing up all this shit and just trying to really get into to training. And so I was into like the actual science behind it really really early on, and I think part of what I missed out on was because I was always into like that physical side, and I was a pretty good athlete. I was explosive. I was strong, but where I lacked was my, my mental capacity really is, is handling stress and handling, um, alcohol shit like that. So it was like, for me, I went through college and I had my first two years, I did really well. And then I sort of just petered around and I didn't looking back. I oftentimes am like, if I had me as a coach, I probably would have hated me as an athlete, but I know how I would have handled myself. And I think as a coach, I know it sounds weird, but I think that that 
like when I graduated from Penn State and I didn't do what I wanted to do, and then I sought out uh, Anatoly Bunderchuk and I went up to train with him, I, I had a main goal was like I had gotten into Temple. I was going to go there to get my master's degree and I could go there and be a religious studies professor over time if I, if I continue to get my PhD, but I didn't, I, I just knew I, I, what I wanted to do was more around sports. And I think that the fact that I didn't pan out as an athlete, the way I had envisioned and I believed that I could have, I constantly wanted to figure out like, why did I just not do what I wanted to do? And I knew most of the reasons why weren't physical. It was, it was deeper. And I think that training with Dr. B sort of showed me like, it is a lot physical, but it is predominantly my mental approach and how I was as an athlete. So I think that the other benefit of being a thrower is that throwing training for the throws is, I would argue like one of the absolute best ways to train athletes in general, because you're training people to be extremely explosive, extremely fast, um, mobile, like, throwers outside of gymnasts are the most explosive athletes in the world. And so that, that actually got me into coaching weightlifting by accident um, as early on in my career. So it was like, I think from my athletic perspective, one of the things that I really uh, tried to focus on is mental health per se, I guess it would be is like how to get one athletes to deal with their own, um, mental issues whatever that might be so that they can keep hammering physically um but also just how to, to teach them how to manage their stress so that when they're in situations that are like the olympic trials they can compete to where they need to be physically it's they're not being hindered by uh, their mental aspect their mental game so i think that i think that's sort of what motivated me the most as a coach was like why did i not you know why was i not an all-american i i'm just as athletic as all these other guys, but it was mainly because I wasn't, no one ever grabbed me by the neck and said like, Dane, you're fucking this up right now. You're, you know, you're a turd. And I think that that, uh, that was like my main inspiration early on. And then I think that over time, as each athlete came through, I tried to treat each athlete as like an experiment for the next one. And whoever came early on, you know, I trained them as well as I could, but each one is, is making me better so that in 10 years from now, I can just continuously learn and, and continuously get better. And I think that that's, that's the main point because I don't, not that, not that our college coach was bad, but I think that he missed, he missed the boat on, on certain things as a, as a coach, as a, as like a guide for somebody to, to really, to really bring out the best in somebody as an athlete. Are you? Yeah. Are you then almost, this is tough because obviously in an ideal situation, you'd have be great at both, but are you almost pleased then to have not failed as an athlete, but to have had these areas that maybe held you back and prevented you from getting to that potential in the sense that it makes you a better coach? I mean, we've spoken to people in the past and you just see for coaches where they see that when you do take high level athletes and then they try and coach people who are not as gifted as they were, it can be a challenge for them in the sense that they don't get why they don't get it. If you see what I mean, like yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for them, it was second nature. And then it's like, why is this it's a like, challenge? Why doesn't for this kid understand how to back squat? Like, how does he not know how to back squat? Is he that big of a turd? Exactly. Like, that, yeah. That's classic. I think, I think for me, it's, I've always struggled with, as far as like movement perspective, I, I think if you, if you can approach it as logically as possible, 
I don't think that 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 would that that question. Like I've always struggled how how some coaches who are like world class, they they don't they don't know how to peak athletes really well, and and sometimes I actually think it's because they didn't know how they were even peaking well when they were competing. Um, I think for me, it me being a not that I was a you know like I was a good coordinated athlete. Um, I think that my poor performances and my poor development, I actually think it's made me like, I think it's key to me being as successful as I've been because it's sort of been like a a chip on my shoulder. You know, like I, I have, you know, right now I'm one of maybe four privatized uh, private uh, training centers for throwing in the U S and I might be, I would say out of the Olympic weightlifting gyms, I would say I'm a top three gym in the U.S. And, and, you know, especially where we're located, we're in sort of in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. Like a lot of these other guys are in like really big urban areas. So I think being a an underachieving athlete, I think, has motivated me more to learn to prevent that from happening, like seeing seeing someone else's capability and knowing I think a key component is knowing what people are capable of before they know. And I think that that was like the, the big problem with me as an athlete in college is like, I don't think my coach knew what the fuck I was capable of. Like, and, and knowing the athletes I train now and knowing their numbers in the weight room and knowing their numbers with like j- different movements, jumps and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, Tamont, one of my guys, Tamont's throwing 2087 and I'm, I was still stronger than him in college. And it's like, what the fuck was I doing? But I think that that's where that's been like that. That's put that chip on my shoulder. And it's also put it to the point where it's like, all right, I'm not a world champ. I'm not Ryan Whiting. Who's who does have his own gym, his own, his own center or group at least. And he's gotten a lot of really top notch talent because of what he accomplished as an athlete. And that's great. Like I, I think he's, he's doing a really, really good job. But for me, it's actually like, I want to prove to people uh, constantly like, Hey, and this is an insecurity of mine. I want to prove to people who the fuck I am and how good I am as a coach. And I think that's one of my main motivators as sad as that can be at at times. (laughs) No, I mean that, that, that makes definite sense. And then I think coming off of that, probably having to prove something, you said you kind of fell into Olympic weightlifting coaching and, and, you know, you said now you have one of the top gyms. So I'm assuming that was kind of also part of it where you're, you know, a thrower and then stepping into a completely new arena and trying to prove to everyone that you can coach a sport that, you know, you didn't compete at at a competitive level. But how, how fun has that experience been kind of transitioning into also being an Olympic weightlifting coach and, and kind of what are some of the the highs and and lows, I guess, that you've gone through in, in that and transitioning into that? I think that the, I, I, this is my favorite story is, is, well, one of my favorite stories is that my first meet was 2012. The first meet I coached somebody at, he was, he was 15 years old and it was the night of the opening ceremonies in London. In 2016, I was coaching Nordic Vardania at the 2016 Olympic trials. And I think that that, so, so I'm saying like in that four year time frame, I went from never coaching at a meet to coaching at the U S Olympic trials, to coaching the guy who's second on the team, um, and I think that that quick sort of like rise 
One was because I trained my weightlifter similar to how I trained in Dr. B's training system. And nobody had really, nobody still really understands uh, that outside of our group, but also um, being a thrower, you, you have to have a technical mindset with, with your, with your, how you're executing the throw. And a lot of weightlifters at the time early on, they was like, oh, if I increase my back squat, I'm going to get stronger. If I increase my front squat, I'm going to get stronger. But nobody was saying like, if I do this with my knees, if I do this with my hips, if I do this with my feet, I'm going to move more precisely so I can utilize my strength more effectively. Nobody was really saying that. So I think having that, that technical aspect from throwing and bringing that into the world of weightlifting. And on top of that, I didn't know anybody in weightlifting. So I didn't give a fuck who I was competing against. Like, Early on, I would be in the back, like stealing people's clocks. Like I figured out all the strategic stuff to weightlifting and I would steal like Dave Spitz who runs Cal strength. Like I'd steal his clock all day and people be like, dude, you're stealing Dave's clock. Dude, I'm here to fucking win. That's all I give a shit about. I'm not, I'm not here to like rub Dave's back and tell him he's my favorite guy that I watch on YouTube. Like I don't give a fuck. And I think that that attitude was big and, and, Throwing or weightlifting is, is like, uh, it it can be like this, it's almost like tennis sometimes where it's just like, it's such this, it's like a mixture. Like if you watch tennis, you you don't really cheer until after the, the, the point is scored or whatever. It's like sometimes like I look at wrestling the way I look at, or I look at weightlifting the way I look at wrestling. It's, it's a grind. It's hard as fuck. You got to train all the time and it's miserable. But the emotional experience when you hit something big, when you hit a big lift, is phenomenal. So that's why everybody does it. It's like this drug that you're just constantly – and it's like – that's like throwing. But what I brought, I think, was like I bring that same throwing intensity to weightlifting. So I'm like going ape shit and I'm fucking talking shit in the back and, and really hyping people up. And I think that really changed uh, the perspective or like the, that persona of weightlifting to a point – not – dramatically but i think a lot of people were like who is this lunatic just screaming when their athletes are are hitting big lifts and i think that that um i don't know i I think that 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 was like that big motivator that i just looked at the sport sort of the way i looked at at throwing the way i looked at at wrestling too and the way i i look at football uh and and honestly outside of track and field weightlifting has gotten me all like every single continent in the world I've, I've, I've gotten to spend months with Piros Dimas, just chilling with him and like talking to him about training all the time. And this is a guy that I used to idolize as an athlete. And now like he has his own nickname for me and we get to chill and drink whiskey and talk shit about how he's, you know, one of the best weightlifters of all time. And it's like, I don't know. I think that it's the weightlifting the rise in weightlifting was extremely enjoyable and extremely fun, mainly because it was like, I came into the sport. No one knew who I was. I wasn't a weightlifter. I had never competed. All my athletes were whooping everybody's ass. And I basically just put a flag down. So like, look, I'm going to build this thing. And I don't give a fuck who all of you are, what teams you made, what Olympics you went to, because I will still whoop your ass with my athletes. And I think that that's, you know, that was fun. <laughs> that's quite the statement yeah how then when you're tra- uh, training players like in different in different for preparing for different sports and you said that you feel like the fundamentals of 
of throwers that they're the most explosive. Like how how similar are their kind of training programs then? And like what percentage of the program is different for say a weightlifter versus a shot putter shot putter versus when you're working with say a football player? I would say so if, if we would look at it like like weightlifting is almost always going to be specific technical work and strength work. So we'll do you know, if just a generic day would be like snatch, clean, jerk, squat. Next day might be power snatch, block cleans, and then a pull. Weightlifting is going to be like over here. But when I train my my football guys or my wrestlers or my throwers, it's almost always like if we're doing like I, I break it up into we have a leg day, an upper body day, and then we call it an athlete day. So like more like plyometric work. Uh, and then we just repeat leg day, upper body day. And if we're training throwers, it's going to be a heavy leg day with at least one Olympic lift. So like a, a snatch or a clean and then a strength lift and then an accessory very specific to the sport of the thrower. And if that was a football player, it might be a, a you know one box clean that would be heavy or a single leg squat for their strength movement. And then the accessory that's specific to that individual's position. Uh, so like uh, running back, like we have a, we have a kid right now who's actually just got back from a visit from Alabama. He's like the number one running back in the, in the country right now. And it's like somebody like him, it's going to be a clean, it's going to be a single leg squat. It's going to be something to improve his hip mobility and his ankle mobility. So he can cut a little bit harder. He's a little more stable when he cuts um, and he can handle hits from different angles because of his mobility. So it's like fix, fixing certain uh, hip air, uh, issues that he might have. So we might use like a, a Cossack squat or something. I don't know if you know what that is, but like almost like an, a side to side squat to open up his hips. So it's like the throwing template is very similar. And even on an upper, upper body day, we'll do like jerks and then we'll bench or we'll do an incline bench or something along those lines. So the throwing template is essentially what we utilize with all, with almost all of our athletes and then what changes is just those accessories and the strength movements and and the the volume like the um, the frequency of them training. You know, football kids in high school they might only train four days a week, but my thrower is going to train six days a week. So it's like that's where it'll change a little bit. You mentioned like the sports specific training, the strength training, etc. Do you get involved in the like the kind of nutritional side, the lifestyle side? Do you bring people in to help you as part of a team? Because what was interesting that you mentioned earlier was you know, when you, back in, back in your day of training, it was just like, do this, get stronger. But then you started mentioning like the science behind it as well. Like, you know, adjust your knee to this dimension, get it to this. So do you bring more people into your team to help with the other side of things as well? Or is it very much kind of one man band when they're under your wing training? Well, I would say for nutrition, it's, it's, it's us. It's myself and Trevor, actually, he's the other throws coach that he had, he has a, master's degree in, in, uh, like sports nutrition, which is sort of bullshit, but he has a good idea. Um, and I have a pretty solid idea as well with, with timing and, and specific needs for women, like what nutritional needs they need at certain po points of their menstruation versus men and what, uh, needs like a, an athlete who is more focused on relative strengths, like a weightlifter versus a football player who might be an offensive lineman and, and just changing that nutritional perspective. Um, but I do use, we have an outside guy named, uh, the mobility doc and he's like, 
he's a, um, a DPT. So he's a, a doctor of physical therapy, which basically means he has a master's in physical therapy, but he's also a chiropractor and he's, he uses Graston uh, and a lot of different various forms of manipulation, like joint manipulation to help uh, deal with structural integrity or structural balance. So because weightlifting, football, wrestling, throwing, uh, all these sports tend to like dominate one side, especially throwers will have a lot of lower back issues to their, their non-dominant side. So it's like John, the mobility doc does, a, he does like all of that uh, structural work and, and with weightlifters because they split jerk, a lot of our guys split jerk and, and women split jerk. So it's like, they'll also have that same uh, structural imbalance issues as well. And that might show up with their shoulder problems or their hip or knee uh, and, and we do use somebody outside for stuff like that, but for, for nutrition, it's mainly almost entirely, um, internal that we do all the, the nutritional work. I, I guess getting back to the, the weightlifting part, I, I have to say, I'm jealous. You now have a relationship with Piros Dimas. I remember us watching Piros Dimas yeah. all the time when we were, when we were throwing as a way to like motivate yeah. ourselves. Cause he was just so intense and just so explosive. Um, so that's, that's, that's awesome. And that's, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, that, that's a great story itself, but from what I've seen over the past few years, since you said, you know, you have risen the ranks, you've got to be able to coach your athletes as well as us on the whole in a lot of really interesting countries because Olympic mm -hmm. weightlifting is very popular in a lot of, I guess, the more non-traditional Olympic countries where, where most medals are being won. So what, what are some funny or good experiences you've had from traveling to countries like Uzbekistan and, and well, all that, these other places? I, I wanted to share this. I wish, I don't know if I have my phone on me. I could show you a picture. Um, yeah, that was, I was going to tell you that. So the last time I was in Uzbekistan and, and this is where it gets interesting because you go to a place like Uzbekistan, I went there in 2018 and I hadn't, I had no comprehension of their history at all. Like other than the fact that they're central Asian, there's a large uh, historical influence from Genghis Khan and a large historical influence from um, uh, like the, like Islamic influence. So people there, the way they look, they look like Asian versions of me, like not truly Asian, but you can tell there's a little bit of Asian in them. And it's like, I didn't fully understand it. So then I, when I went back, this I just got back. I hadn't understood that in 20, I think it was 2015, they had this dictator who died. And when he died, the next guy that came in actually opened the country up. So prior to that, they were like North Korea, Turkmenistan, and Myanmar. And so when I was there in 2018, they were literally just like recovering from this dictatorship, basically. And they had opened it up. And their, their economy was starting to take off. And now I just got back and it was, I had seen in three years, I was like, holy shit, this place is like really, really cool. Now they still have some issues. Um, but my favorite story in Uzbekistan was that they, they tried to, they wanted, cause I was there for like 10 days. They wanted, they wanted to, to charge me like everything was dirt cheap. Everything's so cheap there. And they wanted to charge me like 75 American dollars to do my laundry. And I was like, there's no way I'm paying that. So I, I went to a grocery store and I bought clotheslines and I 
I washed all my clothes in my bathtub. And the only reason I'm really sharing this is because Dimas posted this on his Facebook. He thinks he was like, this is like the funniest story I've ever heard. So I washed all the clothes. I put it in a bag and I go across the street and I strung and we're like downtown Tashkent. I strung on trees, these clotheslines and I tied it, you know, and I have my clothes pins and I hung it. It's really hot there. So I hung my clothing up. And I'm just waiting for, for it to dry. So while it was drying, I was working out on the side of the road of this highway. And all of a sudden, this, dude, this, this manager of the hotel comes sprinting across. He's like, sir, Mr. Miller, sir, you have to take down this clothing. Like, you could get arrested here. And I was like, dude, I'm not taking the clothing down. You want to charge me 75 bucks to fucking dry my clothes? Like, that's bullshit. So... He didn't know what I was saying, so he went and got the translator, and he's like, Dane, Dane, you can't do this here. Like, you could get thrown in jail. And I was like, dude, I'm not taking it down because of how much they're trying to charge me to dry my clothes. And so he translated to the other guy, and the other guy goes, like, just starts yelling at him, and the other guy translates it back to me, and he's like, he said they'll do your laundry for free. And I was like, all right, but one deal. <laughs> You have to take my picture here. So I, I made them take my picture with all my clothes hung up. And I had been there with Dimas and he didn't know this. And then I, when I showed him the picture, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? You idiot. But yeah, I mean that, I just like that story. Anyway, I, I think I'm trying to think of some other good ones. I mean, I've been like, it's, it's just neat. It's my first experience was going to a place like Malaysia. And I just, I never, um, you know, we had spent some time in Singapore and in Malaysia, and I had never thought I'd ever go to Malaysia. And when you get there, it's like, this place is fucking cool. And I think that's the that's the really cool part with weightlifting is you go to a country like Uzbekistan. I, and I told Caitlin this when I got home. It's like, I would take my family there. Like, it's actually like a unique place that has a, a ton of history. And it's also now that they're opened up, it's it's you can see that it's growing. and I think that, you know, going to the different places like Guatemala, Dominican Republic, um, I, I don't know if I even mentioned Ecuador. I've been to Tokyo like three times. Um, just all those unique places. It's like it's it offers the athletes another added variant to their to their, you know, growth as an individual. And I think that that's the biggest thing as coaches. It's like. Dude, it's all it's all great that we're training like I'm training them to to go to the Olympics and to snatch more, clean more, or bench more, or squat more, whatever. But why are we doing this? It, it, like, and I think a lot of coaches forget. I'm 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 doing it for that experience to help them learn and become more responsible human beings, so that they can actually engage and learn and value, you know, all of these lessons that life does provide. And I think that that's the one cool part is that, you know, I've taken six kids to Uzbekistan now or, or five kids to Uzbekistan and and they're all been like dude they would have never gone to Uzbekistan and now they go to a Central Asian country that's predominantly Muslim and it's like wow this place is actually cool whereas the typical person would hear that country's name and be like what the hell are you going there for so I think it's it's a it's a unique sport that and it's the same thing like when I when I like with track, it's pretty similar. I mean, we were in Doha in 2019. Um, it's just neat to travel 
to see these places because I think it does open up the athletes' minds into things that they can benefit from that aren't just like specifically sport related that they can then use later on as, as a tool in whatever they do, you know, after their sporting career is over. No, I think that's a really valid point. And that's something that we've had people touch on before. I do think it's a slight shame. I think it would have been nice if you had had some major international incident because of you trying to, trying to dry your, dry your washing. I think that would have been great. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, the other problem was in 18 when we were there, the World Cup was going on. And I've had – there's been some, like, really, really cool times. One of them was in Ecuador where, like, we had a – one of our guys spoke Spanish. So we went we went out. We were out to, like, 4 in the morning, and it was just, like it, – it's so cool to just party in other countries too because you're just – I don't know. It's neat, you know. You're around – a whole different perspective as far as international affairs though i haven't really had any serious run-ins well maybe are are you will you be going to will you be going to tokyo if it goes yeah actually i just got my tickets today literally like about two hours ago uh i just got my tickets we're leaving um july 22nd so i could probably pull something off there from international perspective yeah it could be really make headlines Yeah, COVID will take a backseat to to Dane's international washer and dryer affair. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have to ask be, before they probably have a more serious question. Having know you known you for a long time, I know you hate to fly. Yeah. So how on earth have you been able to mentally grasp flying to these faraway countries on such a consistent basis? Yeah, it's it's funny because I still struggle with it. Um, I mean, honestly, my my first answer is, dude, I had to go to therapy for a fucking long time, and and I think that that that's also something that triggered me realizing uh, a lot of different things with my athletes was like, I think a lot more people should go to fucking therapy. Um, is is where I was going with that. It's like it, it opened me up to like, wow, I have this. You know, it, it took, I didn't, I didn't fly from 2008. It was like February of 08 until, until uh, June of 2016. So I didn't fly for eight years. And I was like, my wife went to a couple meets. Uh, I would send, I had sent athletes to Georgia, the country and um, where else were they? they uh, like all over the world. And I just didn't go because I was, I was too scared to just get on a fucking plane. And I think that. I still struggle with, with turbulence. I, I don't know why. I, I mean, I do know why I have like this illogical thought that the the plane's going to just fall apart. And I'm like, why the fuck is this giant metal bird up actually flying? Um, but the, the, I think going back to is I, I did, a, and I've, I've done a lot of time in like cognitive behavior therapy and doing doing that work on myself and, and learning why I have such a short fuse with anger and, and how I've mismanaged stress my whole life and how I've had these illogical thoughts. I jump to conclusions and there's times I just want to fucking kill people. Like it, it made me realize like, dude, you've got to, you've got to learn how to handle this stuff. And there's actually skills that go along with stress management. People aren't just, like some people are born to deal with stress really well. And some people are born to deal with stress well, but also 
rage at the same time. And that's sort of me, but I didn't know how to deal with stress and like slow, slow my response down. And when I learned how to, how to slow that response down, that's how I got, that's how I could handle, um, the flights. And, And I'll be honest, I still, I'm not like perfect when I get on a flight, but I'm much more, there's, there's moments I've been on, especially when I've flown, uh, like the longer, I had a flight, I actually was talking about this uh, earlier with a buddy of mine. I had a flight from Hong Kong to, uh, to Newark and it was like 16 and a half hours. And I remembered sitting on the plane cause we were leaving from Thailand. Uh, we flew from Thailand to Hong Kong and then Hong Kong home. And I remember I actually sat on the plane and I was like, fucking thank God I'm on the plane. Nobody can text me or ask me to do any bullshit for them. Like I can just chill here for 16 hours. Now, eight hours into the flight, I was like, God, give me off this fucking plane. But it was still like a, a win for me of like learning how to handle that stress and just slowing my response down. Cause I've always just had a very, very short fuse with anything like, and that, that was, you know, to answer your question, um, that was the key component there. Uh, Frank was just figuring out, you know, engaging with trying to better myself mentally, really. I'm glad you got the killing part. I'm well, I'm glad you got the killing part under control anyway, <laughs> especially in a confined place like a plane. <laughs> yes. It's, it's hats off to the therapist. That's funny. So, I mean, I guess to have you on, it'd be a shame not to bring up the fact that if I got it right, like the, the shot put world record was, was like, yeah, I was like a hundred meters behind it. <laughs> was what that a happened? surprise? Was that a surprise to you that the record was broken, broken by the, cause I mean, most of the throwing records, not that I'm from a throwing background, but they kind of been there for a while. Like they are. Yeah. Somebody... yeah they, were all, they were all, I mean, I actually might even have on my on my recording of the, the so what was crazy is that my guy Taman was in that final and he was sandwiched between so in the warmups, Joe Kovacs who won the world title and beat Ryan Krauser in 2019. Joe or Krauser threw first. Taman was after Krauser and then Joe Kovacs was after Taman. So. Taman, my guy, had to to throw between the two guys that everybody thought could break the world record. And Joe had to have, and I'm not joking, at, I bet you like a 2380 warm-up, everybody was losing their shit at how big it was. Now, in the comp, he threw like 2230. Um, but everybody had sort of seen with, with Krauser, people thought he could break it last year. Um, and everybody sort of seen it coming, you know, and they, even in uh, end of May, he had a 2301. I think yeah. it was actually, I, I texted Dane. I saw him throw yeah. the one that was like 15 centimeters short of the record. And I texted Dane saying, I almost just saw the world record in the shot be broken. And then he yeah. one upped me yeah. at the trials. <laughs> yeah. So, so people saw it coming and especially because the circle, the circle in, in Eugene here is pretty quick, but it's a nice circle. It's just a little, it's fast though. And I, and that sort of favors him. Um, and he's, he's super consistent. He's got really good technique and he, and every throw is the same. So it's sort of, people felt it coming, but, but, but to go back to when, when he broke the world record, I, so I, I, I don't like videoing things, but I knew something was going to happen. So I'm videoing it here and I'm watching it because I want to watch it with my own eyes and then just save this later, right? It's like, 
I want to be present, but at the same time, like cheat a little. And as soon as it popped up, I don't, I got to check if I have this on my, my phone. Cause I went, I had one of my discus guys was next to me and I was going ape shit. Like Randy Barnes can go fuck himself. He got popped twice and tr- still to this day does, he just doesn't come out and admit he was on steroids. It's like, dude, just fucking own it up. Like grow up. How do you still fucking deny this stuff? Like you're an adult and that's the stuff that I don't ever get. Like you went your whole life as a career, as an athlete and you're still that immature that you're going to lie about you getting drug tested and popped twice. It's the same shit with this distance runner with Shelby Houlihan. It's like, you're a fucking liar. Grow up. Like just admit it. Admit you fucked up. Like, Dude, we all cheat on shit. I've cheated on fucking tests and stuff. I'll admit it. Doesn't make you a doesn't necessarily make you this horrible person. But so I was so happy to see that fucking record go. And really, with the with the throwing records, the javelin I I believe is was definitely tainted, um, and that might go down as well. That's close. There's a guy out of Germany who's close with that. And then, you know, hammer. I know for a fact they were on drugs because Doctor B would would tell us like who was taking what. Um, at what time and then I think right now I think one of the hardest records in the books right now is the women's discus and that's where it's like a lot of people are starting to complain that those records that there's a lot of those records that are actually still even in existence it's like the women's 800 meters and the women's discus records they're like nobody's ever gonna nobody's ever gonna touch them they're just they're literally like superhuman records and and it shows I think it sh- it shows you like this, you know, this record was set in 91. So what are we 30 fucking years behind? Like, so you're like, that's the whole thing. And drugs literally puts you 30 plus years ahead of, of competition that that's not using. And that's just, to me, that's, that's insane. If you think about it. So it's like, uh, I, that's where I was like, cool to see with Krauser. And I think the other cool thing with Krauser is like his dad's, his coach, and the way that they that they work together, like it's you know his his dad sent him like he went to uh, Texas and did his own thing, but they're really it's like a really unique relationship that they have. It's not like uh it's not it's not toxic in any way, shape, or form. And I think that that's something that's also really cool to see is like how they engage and interact with each other, and how they go about their their whole process is it's it's really really unique so to see it even get to the point of where it's at now where he's the new world record holder it's it's i think it's fucking awesome and i would say it's probably the dude i've seen fucking some crazy shit i've seen uh, lasha talakadze snatch 210 kilos fucking 20 feet from me and clean and jerk 260 kilos um i've seen jordan burroughs wrestle i've seen fucking kyle snyder wrestle i've seen some of the best athletes in the world compete and do crazy, crazy shit. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen in person. It was just, you know, the, the feeling and you could just feel every single fucking throw. He was getting closer and closer and closer. And boom. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really neat too. Cause it's, I felt the same way. Cause it's exactly what you touched on where you knew that record was tainted. Right. And, and yeah. you just wanted to eventually see someone be able to break it who is is a clean athlete and is just a dedicated hardworking athlete so it was it's really cool when you see something like that happen and you're like finally someone has made a legitimate record and, and gone back and and erased this well, and, and that's the other thing is that now what's interesting in the world of sports right now is like 
one drug testing is extremely fucking effective. Like, um, as long as, you know, WADA is not getting paid off. If it's, you know, if you, if you follow USADA and how USADA's protocols are, it's really, really fucking effective. It's really precise. And they test people all the fucking time. Like we get, we have people drug tested at the gym so much by USADA that we actually have a parking space that has a sign that says like USADA parking only as like a joke. But I think what's, what's crazy is that the, the drug testing is so effective. So, and at the same time, back, you know, back in the nineties, there was the boom of, you know, Nike was just blowing up. Adidas was blowing up. All these companies were just getting, you know, going from like a $200 million company to a billion dollar company during that decade. And I think that now those companies aren't investing what they used to. So, so in the nineties and early two thousands, a lot of these guys were making like a million bucks a year. And I'm sure Krauser makes good money, but he's not making enough money for him to be able to get a designer steroid from Victor Connie and pass a test. Like it's just the, the investment, the return isn't there. So, because there's no financial return relative to, to, you know, 20 years ago. And I think that that that's an interesting part now with track, at least with throwing is that the, the stuff we're seeing with women's hammer in the United States and, and, and with the, the men's shot um, it's, it's really, I think, all related to how much better our training has gotten. And I think, dude, this sounds crazy. I think a lot of the success is actually related to things like social media and, and like YouTube and just being able to share information and training theory and training methodology and recovery and having direct access to PubMed. It's, it's just like, it's this big boom now we're in, in sports science in sports performance because of how easy it is to see what the best coaches are doing, what the best athletes are doing. And and now somebody like Krauser, you know, this might get broken. I don't know. It might get broken in 10 years because the next kid is watching him train and seeing what he's doing in training. And he has direct access to really, really good resources that can help him get a leg up that Krauser didn't have. You know, a lot of people are sitting there going for, for Frank, his technique, you know, he was a glider until he was like 18. Well, now everybody's spinning when they're fucking 10. So now that next you know, like generation of throwing is inspired by this guy. And I think that that's what we're going to see in the next like 10 years. It's going to get crazy. Yeah. So I, I've got one last question for you and then maybe Eddie and Sam have one more, but um, kind of piggybacking off of this, maybe this is naive, but is that, is the doping the reason why you think USA weightlifting has been behind being on the podium so often in the past 20, 30 years and that yeah. maybe now that they'll start I, I to think, come back or is it something, is it a lot more than that? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's, so I think if you, if you look at, if you look at like the, the 2019 world champs, just as the last world championships uh, and at a junior level, the, the, the women's team um, in the U S were like, I would say number one or number two team overall weightlifting team. Um, I would say probably number two behind China. I do still think China has, because they have such funding and, and they likely do have designer steroids. I don't care what anybody says. Like if you just see the, what these guys do in the back, um, 
I think I think for from a weightlifting perspective, I think because of the corruption, you know, the IWF, the, the heads, the head of the, the IWF got caught laundering money to multiple different nations, paying off guys with with WADA, um, Thomas Ayan. So if anybody wants to challenge me, they can just go Google him and see all the all the shit behind him. And he, you know, he was ousted, and it was basically like all of these top countries were really, really good because they were hiding drug tests. They were paying people off to take a test for them. Um, they were paying people to miss lifts. And so in the U S we were always one, we were always behind the eight ball because our training wasn't as good, but now in the last like 10 years, um, you're starting to see, especially, you know, the women's team is sort of dominating. Now the men's team's really picking up steam. Um, I do think too, though, because we have so many other sports, it's just it's a harder it's a harder sport to get into early on. But now with a lot more of like sports performance being around weightlifting and seeing the benefits of Olympic weightlifting, you're seeing some kids that just sort of sneak into the sport because they were a wrestler or they're a gymnast or they were you know, they had a dream that they wanted to go play D one football and they realized that being five five is not really beneficial to be a Division one football player. So I think that that's where we're starting to see in the U S that that uh, weightlifting is getting more successful. But I do believe up until a couple years ago, a lot of the the issues were still related to doping. Yeah, that's it's I mean, it was one of the questions I'd wanted to ask you and just to see how much you thought that was still an issue nowadays. I'm going to take us. Oh, you know, go ahead, please. Well, I, I think with with the doping stuff, it's like they they tried to they tried to alleviate some of it by they set up these trimesters in weightlifting. And so you had to compete at a drug tested meet for over three is basically over two and a half to three years in these trimesters. And you've, you know, they've changed the weight classes to sort of get rid of some of the old world records. And some of these guys, you know, in 2014, 2015, were putting up huge numbers at like a weight class, like 77 kilos. And now they changed the weight class to 81 and they still aren't hitting the numbers that they were hitting at 77, like 10 kilos under those numbers. And it's like, that's sort of where it's like, all right. So now these countries, they're realizing like, and they have to come to the U.S. for a world championships. And when they do that, their numbers are significantly lower because they're not, they're not on gas. It's like, so you can just see how the, the trends are changing because of that. The only one I'd say that isn't trending that way is the, the, the Chinese and then Lasha, the the super heavyweight who has been popped, and I highly doubt is clean, but somehow he hasn't been popped again. All right. I have one, my final question. Why? It's kind of two questions. A, I'd like for, I don't know if this is even possible, but I want to see if it's possible for us to set up to know what our scores are on your uh, match as a sports metric. So I'd like to be, (laughs) that we can safer off the podcast to work out how we can do that. Yeah, we'll have to send you, I'll have to send you like the tests and shit you have to do. Okay. Um, Is it, is it possible to be minus? (laughs) 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 No, dude, there's some, there's some really, I think I to, to, but before you ask your other question, Ed, one of the other things that we do too at the gym is like, in the U.S., like a dad brings in their kid, and I think that I've had I've had I've had parents tell me this, like, "Hey, one of the hardest things is like seeing your kid get beaten by other kids." And I, and what's weird to me is like I, I guess I can sort of relate to it, but 
my like my oldest son is a is a pretty good athlete, but he's not the greatest. But I also just don't put like a shit ton of value on what he does as an athlete. Like I, I want him to do well. I want him to succeed. And I want him to go through all these trials successfully, but I know that it's not going to happen perfectly. It's not, it's not going to happen, but these parents will come in thinking like, yeah, my, my kid's going to be a division one football player. My kid's going to be a state champion wrestler. And then we'll put them through these tests. And it's like, dude, your kid scored like a 37. That's like, my son, who's nine, could score like a fifty. Like, get out of here! Like, oh, kid, no. he might not even start on the JV team, and he's a junior. Like, he's not going D one, bro. Like, and it's telling them that it's like you don't think. Have you seen your kid move? Do you? Did you ever throw a baseball with him when he was younger? Like, did you spend time with him? <laughs> like, you should have thought about being a better dad fucking ten years ago. Have you said that exact <laughs> monologue to someone? He actually just said this morning. That's why I came out so fluid. Yeah. <laughs> I always said, I, I go, I, I, Frank, you'll, you'll probably like this one. Is I tell Caitlin all the time, I'm like, when I turn 40, it's over. All the bullshit that pisses me off, I'm fucking telling parents right away. And she said, she was like, well, I mean, you are starting to get gray in your beard now. So that should help with like solidifying your, your wisdom to a point. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you once... Like th- those interactions will happen at some point in my life. Well, like, cause these parents are just, they're, they're literally uh, disillusioned with what they think their kid is capable of. It's like, how do you, how are you so out of touch with fucking reality? Well, I just want to throw it out there. Whoever amongst us gets the lowest score, you can give them that rant just directly. I'd like <laughs> them to just a phone call from you with them telling them how, uh... but my other You're question. A bad person. Yeah, my other question, which kind of ties into that, I guess, is to go back to a more like amateur athlete standpoint. Then, from a training perspective, what do you think that most amateur athletes do wrong? Like, if they're trying to build strength, is there like a single key mistake that you see happen across athletes, or is it just very much dependent on a person? I think it's really dependent upon a person, but I think some of the big things is just not comprehending the process and not comprehending. This will be like a three-part answer. Not comprehending like how every fucking detail plays into how they recover from their training and like what's the purpose of training. And it's like they'll, you know, they might lift really well. They might train in their sport, in their specific sport really well. But then they go to McDonald's for three meals and they get four hours of sleep because they're playing cod till fucking five in the morning or wait hold on a second if you've been watching my life I've, this feels yeah. very personal oh you guys you two are doomed for scoring on this test <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's it's like dude like if you want to go to the olympics or do this shit the, all of this has to be in line and it and, the, and then the other thing is like the the time frame so a lot of people will say like i want to do this by this and it's like no, that's not how it works. It takes years and years and years and years and years to get to that point. And if you're 18 years old, unless you're a total phenom to get to that world-class level, it's going to take you till you're 22, 23, 24. And then you've got to deal with what happens with life. And I think that that's where the biggest, the third part is like the hardest transition for a weightlifter is going from a junior to a senior lifter, because that's when they they're in college. Um, 
they might get a job. And it's the same thing with throwing. It's when with throwing, it's more so when they get out of college, there's that year or two where just kids don't know how to have a job. You know, college, dude, you're 18 to 23. That's the dumbest age group of humanity. Like you're just the dumbest fucking person that you will ever be. That's the time frame when it's going to be. And it's like, then they, they, they think their life's hard because they're going to college and they've got all these papers to write. And then they graduate and they're like, shit, I've got to work a job and train and make my own meals. And my mom's not wiping my ass anymore. And now all of a sudden they realize like they get overwhelmed by that stuff. So I think that that's like, if you're, if you are an at like you're not in a professional sport like football or, or, you know, any of the major sports that has a big financial backing is that, the, there's a there's a massive period of transition and that transition period of a year to two years is going to set you back another year or two years on your performance goals so you've got to have that long-term you know bigger picture perspective set in place otherwise everything's just going to be a fucking huge letdown and you've got to be real with it you've got to be like once you get into your your game into your sport it's like what does it take to get to the top? And you've got to have a coach who believes that you can get to the top and that understands how to get to the top. And then they can look at you and be like, this is where your glaring issues are. And this is how we're going to fix it. And it's going to take a long fucking time. So I think that that, that time frame, it's just like everything in life. It's like, you want to be the best at, at anything. You've got to put in the fucking time and, and, and work. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, it's, it's such a great point. And we had, uh, we interviewed Frank Molinaro now a while ago. So anyone who's listening to this and should definitely go back and listen to that one. It's a really good episode, but he, you know, he was someone who you could tell early on when he was at Penn state wrestling, you know, he was still, like you said, a, a, a kid who was kind of just wrestling thought he could run the world and then realized, you know, he's got to do a lot more. And it wasn't until his, you know, final two years that he really started to trust the process, like you're saying, and be totally invested, right. You know, like, taking care of your sleep, your nutrition and everything. And, you know, he went on to win a national championship and then realized, you know, the grind to going to the Olympics isn't a six month grind. It's a three, four year grind. And he put in the time and the, he, you know, would make schedules every day, every month, every year, you know, he'd time out, you know, short-term, long-term goals. So yeah, it's, it's such a great point. And we've had other athletes have kind of said the same thing. It's, it's definitely a long-term investment. I, I actually think too, Frank, what you just said is, I think the biggest, one of the biggest things to keeping shit in perspective is like how you mentioned with that schedule from Frankie is you, you sit there and you go, all right, as a business owner, the best fucking business owners in the world, the guys that are, that have grown, um, a grown a company to, to multiple million dollars or have grown companies a hundred million dollars. Those business owners, those CEOs or whoever they are, the leaders of the companies generally are very, very well structured. They've figured out some way to structure sort of like compartments or periods of their day so that they can execute everything as effectively as they can. And they understand how all of these moving pieces have to come together. And I think that that's something that I've learned running the businesses, but also then try to teach the athletes is like, it can't be this shotgun effect. It's got to have, there's got to be precise, deliberate work that goes into to doing that. And I think, dude, just having a fucking planner or a schedule, like a schedule on a daily basis can drastically improve um, the efforts that you put into your sport. If you, if you are, you know, for anybody really. 
Go get a scheduler. Get a plan, Frank. <laughs> All right. Well, I know we've 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 held you past the time you said you needed to go by anyway. So I don't want to. Everybody's used to me being fucking late. So they'll just be like, "Oh, things late let's, again." Let's, wait, let's 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 give them one more real quick one. Okay. What is an Olympic athlete sport you'd like to train someone in that you haven't trained someone in yet? Edmonton. Really? Uh, Seriously? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll say this though. Um, yeah, badminton. <laughs> I, I, I would say Olympian though, uh, dude, this year, fucking uh, rest, freestyle wrestling. You know, I had Gwiz, who's a two time world bronze medalist, and I just, we could just sense that Gable Stevenson, who's just another fucking, he's on another level. Um, and that I would probably actually say if I could get a wrestler to the Olympics, I think that would be a huge, a huge accomplishment um, personally, just because it's such a fucking hard sport. It's a very, very challenging sport. Um, but I do, I dude, I love, I know it's funny, but I love badminton. And I did, I, uh, I started to work with it before COVID hit. I started to work with the, the Chinese sprint cycling team. And so the only reason I got this gig was the there was a coach who's American and he's from Trexler Town, which is right near my house. And there's a velodrome, which is the sprint track that you're on when you do sprint cycling. Um, and so they every year there's this huge festival for like a month where all these countries come and they train and they train there and they have competitions every Friday. And ten, I'd say at least ten of them, like Canada, South Africa, New Zealand. Trinidad, um, the U.S., all these people would come and train at the gym. And so they would come in and, and they would also see the throwers and the wrestlers and the, and the high school, like high school kids that we have and, and the weightlifters. And so this guy who was American, was a, he coached for Canada and then he got a job at Trinidad and Tobago because they have a really good sprint cycling team. Long story short, he um, got a call from Team China and, you know, I would be – in 19, it was like October, and they flew him to Beijing, and he went, and they offered him this huge salary. So he took the job, um, and when he got there, the whole program was in shambles. So I started to – so he trusted me because he had been around me for about three years throughout this, these summer camps. And I started to work with the Chinese sprint cycling through four blocks. So we went through about like 12 to 16 weeks of training, and then that's when COVID hit. And they were actually – I was about to fly to the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas because they were training there. And then COVID hit and everything just fucking got shut down. Um, but that's another sport, too, that is a really, really interesting sport. And if you ever go in and watch it, it's super intense and it's really enjoyable to watch. And there's a lot of different moving pieces that go into it. So I would say now that I've been in there a couple of times, um, that would be another one would be sprint cycling. So can I just clarify on the badminton? Is that because you enjoy badminton and it would be cool to coach it or because you think that the explosiveness that you could help them to generate would be crucial to their success within the sport? Both. Okay. <laughs> yeah, both. I think it's just, I mean, growing up, I have these long games that we play, at, you know, with my high school friends that we played like growing up, I would play badminton so much in my parents' backyard that our badminton court would be completely turned into dirt. And we would just do, we play for five hours sober. Then we played 
games while we would be drinking. And, and it's, it's such a fast sport. I know it sounds funny, but it's like when you watch how quick everything is, it's, it's really freaking crazy. And I, and, and I, and I, it's got a little place in my heart too. <laughs> I mean, I like, I like badminton, so I'm not, I'm, yeah. I was just surprised. I thought it was like a left field answer, but it makes sense. But, uh, but yeah. Now, now I'm going to be thinking about that question the rest of the day. What other sports do I want to coach somebody? I actually, Sam, or uh, Sam, God damn it, I keep calling Frank Sam. I mainly, <laughs> I, uh, uh, Frank, I had a, I don't know if you saw, I had a decathlete who got 10th at the trials and he's still, he just graduated from college. I've been working with him. He's a D2 oh. guy for like three and a half years now. And that is another area and track that I would love to get into because it's like the throws score a lot of points, but also understanding how the vault works and the long jump and, and all the different parts of that. And then I don't know if you've ever done this, but I got to coach him during the 15. So I'm screaming splits at him. Like, like every time <laughs> he come around, I'm telling him his splits and when he's hitting me. And I, it was like the most exhilarating thing. I felt like I was a part of his competition. So I'm screaming like, 74 74 <laughs> and some of the some of the throws coaches were trolling me afterwards they were texting me like were you just telling your decathlete to just keep turning left as he was running <laughs> <laughs> that was like experiencing that actual event of a of a like a sport that i'm not it's you know i'm, I'm in track but i'm not in with decathletes typically it made me like wow that was freaking fun when we were done and then I'm sitting there like, man, how do I get more decathletes here? So that's another one that I, I would I wouldn't yeah. mind. Yeah, I mean, it, we had previously on the podcast, we had Thomas Gronemark, who was a former Danish bobsledder. And he's now oh, that'd be cool. He's now the world's I was, I was premier say that one throwing too. coach. So it's like a weird oh, transition really? that, yeah, so he's now in, in soccer and football as he works with Liverpool and Ajax and a number of like elite teams, specifically just on throw-ins. But his background was, I mean, he wasn't a, yeah. So it's kind of those weird transitions of where he's trying to apply things that he learned from one sport and take it to another one to help with the approach. Yeah, I think I, I think that's the thing with bobsled is similar to throwing. They're just training to be as fast and as, as explosive as possible. So I could see that that transfer for sure. Yeah, it's like Lolo Jones, right? Being uh, going to the bobsledding yeah, the team, hurdles. Yeah. the hurdles because she's so explosive. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dane. It's been. Yeah, thanks Quite for having a pleasure. me. Yeah, it's yeah. been great. Thank right. you. It's been good. Thank you.